Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today, and feel safe every day on your devices. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, and uh, I think it's time to jump in. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey Part 1 8 One Christmas, at midnight on the button, at the old place, the ward door blows open with a crash. In comes a fat man with a beard, eyes ringed red by the cold, and his nose just the color of a cherry. The black boys get him cornered in the hall with flashlights. I see he's all tangled in the tinsel public relation has been stringing all over the place, and he's stumbling around in it in the dark. He's shading his red eyes from the flashlights and sucking on his mustache. Ho, 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 he says. I'd like to stay, but I must be hurrying along. Very tight schedule, you know. Ho, ho, must be going. The black boys move in with their flashlights. They kept him with us six years before they discharged him, clean-shaven and skinny as a pole. The big nurse is able to set the wall clock at whatever speed she wants just by turning one of those dials at the steel door. She takes a notion to hurry things up. She turns the speed up, and those hands whip round that disc like spokes in a wheel. The scene in the picture screen window goes through rapid changes of light to show morning, noon, and night, throb off and on furiously with day and dark, and everybody is driven mad to keep up with the passing of fake time. Awful scramble of shaves and breakfasts and appointments and lunches and medications and ten minutes of night so you can barely get your eyes closed before the dorm lights screaming at you to get up and start the scramble again. Go, like a son of a bitch this way, going through the full schedule of the day, maybe twenty times an hour, till the big nurse sees everybody is right up to the breaking point. 
and she slacks off on the throttle, eases off the pace on that clock dial, like some kid been fooling with the moving picture projection machine and finally got tired of watching the film run at ten times its natural speed, got bored with all that silly scampering and insect squeak of talk, and turned it back to normal. She's given to turning up the speed this way on days like, say, when you got somebody to visit you, or when the VFW brings down a smoke show from Portland. Times like that. Times you'd like to hold and have stretch out. That's when she speeds things up. But generally, it's the other way. The slow way. She'll turn the dial to a dead stop and freeze the sun there on the screen so it don't move a scant hair for weeks. So not a leaf on a tree or a blade of grass in the pasture shimmers. The clock hands hang at two minutes to three, and she's liable to let them hang there till we rust. You sit solid, and you can't budge. You can't walk or move to relieve the strain of sitting. You can't swallow, and you can't breathe. And the only thing you can move is your eyes, and there's nothing to see but petrified acutes across the room waiting on one another to decide whose play it is. The old chronic next to me has been dead six days, and he's rotting to the chair. And instead of fog, sometimes you let a clear chemical gas in through the vents, and the whole ward is set solid when the gas changes to plastic. Lord knows how long we hang this way. Then, generally, she'll ease the dial up a degree, and that's worse yet. I can take hanging dead still better than I can take that syrup-slow hand of Scanlon across the room taking three days to lay down a card. My lungs pull for the thick plastic air, like getting it through a pinhole. I try to go to the latrine, and I feel buried under a ton of sand, squeezing my bladder till green sparks flash and buzz across my forehead. I strain with every muscle and bone to get out of that chair and go to the latrine, work to get up till my arms and legs are a shake and my teeth hurt. I pull and pull, and all I gain is maybe a quarter inch off the leather seat. So I fall back and give up and let the pee pour out, activating a hot salt wire down my left leg that sets off humiliating alarm siren spotlights, everybody up, yelling, and running around, and the big black boy knocking the crowd aside right and left as both of them rush headlong at me waving awful mops of wet copper wires, crackling and spinning as they short with the water. About the only time we get any let-up from this time control is in the fog. Then, time doesn't mean anything. It's lost in the fog, like everything else. They haven't really fogged the place full force all day today, not since McMurphy came in. I bet he'd yell like a bull if they fogged it. When nothing else is going on, you usually got the fog or the time control to contend with. But today, something's happened. There hasn't been any of these things worked on us all day. Not since shaving. This afternoon, everything is matching up. When the swing shift comes on duty, the clock says 4.30, just like it should. The big nurse dismisses the black boys and takes a last look around the ward. She slides a long silver hat pin out of the iron-blue knot of hair at the back of her head, takes off her white cap, and sets it careful in a cardboard box. There's mothballs in that box, and drives the hat pin back into the hair with a stab of her hand. Behind the glass, I see her tell everyone good evening. 
she hands the little birthmarked swing shift nurse a note. Then her hand reaches out to the control panel in the steel door, clacks on the speaker in the day room. Good evening, boys. Behave yourselves. And turns the music up, louder than ever. She rubs the inside of her wrist across her window. A disgusted look shows the fat boy who just reported on duty that he better get to cleaning it. And he's at the glass with a paper towel before she so much as locked the ward door behind her. The machinery in the walls whistles, sighs, drops into a lower gear. Then, till night, we eat and shower and go back to sit in the day room. Old Blastic, the oldest vegetable, is holding his stomach and moaning. George, the black boys call him Rub-A-Dub, is washing his hands in the drinking fountain. The acutes sit and play cards and work at getting a picture on the TV by carrying the set every place the cord will reach in search of a good beam. The speakers in the ceiling are still making music. The music from the speakers isn't transmitted in on the radio beam. That's why machinery doesn't interfere. The music comes off a long tape in the nurse's station. A tape we all know so well by heart that there don't any of us consciously hear it, except new men, like McMurphy. He hasn't got used to it yet. He's dealing blackjack for cigarettes, and the speaker's right over the card table. He's pulled his cap way forward till he has to lean his head back and squint from under the brim to see his cards. He holds his cigarette between his teeth and talks around it, like a stock auctioneer I once saw at a cattle auction in the Dallas. Hey, 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 come on, come on, he says high and fast. I'm waiting on you, suckers. You hear, you sit. Hit, you say. Well, well, well. And with a king up, the boy wants a hit. What do you know? So coming at you and, oh, too bad, a little lady for the lad. And he's over the wall and down the road, up the hill and dropped his load. Coming at you, Scanlon, and I wish some idiot in that nurse's hothouse would turn down that friggin' music. Who? Does that thing play all day and night, Harden? I never heard such a driving racket in my life. Harding gives him a blank look. Exactly what noise is it you're referring to, Mr. McMurphy? That damn radio. Boy, it's been going ever since I come in this morning. I don't come on with some baloney that you don't hear it. Harding cocks his ear to the ceiling. Oh, yes. The so-called music. Yes. I suppose we do hear it if we concentrate, but then one can hear one's own heartbeat, too, if he concentrates hard enough. He grins at McMurphy. You see, that's a recording playing up there, my friend. We seldom hear the radio. The world news might not be therapeutic. And we've all heard that recording so many times now, it simply slides out of our hearing. The way the sound of a waterfall soon becomes an unheard sound to those who live near it. Do you think, if you lived near a waterfall, you could hear it very long? I still hear the sound of the falls in the Columbia. Always will. Always. Hear the whoop of Charlie Bearbelly, stabbed himself on a big chinook. Hear the slap of fish in the water, laughing naked kids on the bank. The woman at the racks. A long time ago. Do they leave it on all the time, like a waterfall? May Murphy says. Not when we sleep. Cheswick says, but all the rest of the time, that's the truth. The hell with that? I'll tell that coon over there to turn it off or get his fat little ass kicked. He starts to stand up, and Harding touches his arm. Friend, 
That is exactly the kind of statement that gets one branded assaultive. Are you so eager to forfeit the bet? And Murphy looks at him. That's the way it is, huh? A pressure game. Keep the old pinch on. That's the way it is. He slowly lowers himself into his seat, saying, Horse manure. Harding looks about at the other acutes around the cart table. Gentlemen, already I seem to detect in our red-headed challenger a most unheroic decline of his TV cowboy stoicism. He looks at McMurphy across the table, smiling. McMurphy nods at him and tips his head back for the wink and licks his big thumb. Well, sir, old Professor Harden sounds like he's getting cocky. He wins a couple of splits and he goes to coming on like a wise guy. Well, well, well. There he sits with a deuce showing and hears a pack of Marlboros as he backs down. Whoop, he sees me. Okie dokie. Professor, here's a tray. Gets another juice. Tries for the big five, Professor. Try for that big double play or play it safe. Another pack says you won't. Well, well, well. The professor sees me. Tells this tale. Too bad. Another lady and the professor flunks his exams. The next song starts up from the speaker. Loud and clangy and a lot of accordion. McMurphy takes a look up at the speaker and his spiel gets louder and louder to match it. Hey, ya! Uh, okay, next, goddammit! You hit or sit? Coming at ya! Right up till lights out at 9.30. I could have watched McMurphy at that blackjack table all night. The way he dealt and talked and roped them in and led them smack up to the point where they were just about to quit, and then backed down a hand or two to give them confidence and bring them along again. Once he took a break for a cigarette, and tilted back his chair, his hands folded behind his head, and told the guys, The secret of being the top-notch con man is being able to know what a mark wants, and how to make him think he's getting it. I learned that when I worked for a season on a skiller wheel in a carnival. You feel the sucker over with your eyes when he comes up and you say, Now here's a bird that needs to feel turf. So every time he snaps at you for taking him, you quake in your boots, scared to death, and tell him, Please, sir. No more trouble. The next road's on the house. So the both of you are getting what you want. He rocks forward, and the legs of his chair come down with a crack. He picks up the deck, zips his thumb over it, knocks the edge of it against the table, licks his thumb and finger. And what I deduce you marks need is a big, fat pot to temptate you. Here's ten packages on the next deal. Hey, coming at you. Gus Ball from here on out. And throws back his head and laughs out loud the way the guys hustled to get their bets down. That laugh banged all around the day room all evening. And all the time he was dealing, he was joking and talking and trying to get the players to laugh along with him. But they were all afraid to loosen up. It had been too long. They won the deal off him a time or two, but he always bought it back, or fought it back. And the cigarettes on each side of him grew in bigger and bigger pyramid stacks. Then, just before 9.30, he started letting them win. Let them win it all back so fast they can hardly remember losing it. He pays out the last couple of cigarettes and lays down the deck and leans back with a sigh and shoves his cap out of his eyes and the game is done. Well, sir, win a few, lose a few. The rest is what I say.
He shakes his head, so forlorn. I don't know. I was always a pretty shrewd customer at 21. But you birds may just be too tough for me. You got some kind of uncanny neck that makes a man leery of playing against such sharpies for real money tomorrow. He isn't even kidding himself into thinking they'll fall for that. He let him win, and every one of us watching the game knows it. So do the players. But there still isn't a man raking at his pile of cigarettes. Cigarettes he didn't really win, but only won back because they were his in the first place that doesn't have a smirk on his face like he's the toughest gambler on the whole Mississippi. The fatback boy, and the black boy named Griever, runs us out of the day room and commences turning the lights off with a little key on a chain. And as the ward gets dimmer and darker, the eyes of the little birthmarked nurse in the station get bigger and brighter. She's at the door of the glass station, issuing nighttime pills to men that shuffle past her in line. And she's having a hard time keeping straight of who gets poisoned with what tonight. She's not even watching where she pours the water. What has distracted her attention this way is that big red-headed man with the dreadful cap and the horrible-looking scar coming her way. She's watching McMurphy walk away from the card table in the dark day room, his one horny hand twisting the red tuft of hair that sticks out of the little cup at the throat of his work farm shirt. And I figure, by the way she rears back when he reaches the door of the station, that she's probably been warned about him beforehand by the big nurse. Oh, one more thing before I leave it in your hands tonight, Miss Pilbo. That new man, sitting over there, the one with the garish red sideburns and the facial lacerations. I have reason to believe he is a sex maniac. May Murphy sees how she's looking, so scared and big-eyed at him, so he sticks his head in the station door where she's issuing pills and gives her big, friendly grin to get acquainted on. This flusters her, so she drops the water pitcher on her foot, she gives a cry and hops on one foot and jerks her hand, and the pills that she was about to give me leaps out of the little cup right down the neck of her uniform, where that birthmark stain runs like a river of wine down into a valley. Let me give you a hand, ma'am. And that very hand comes through the station door, scarred and tattooed and the color of raw meat. Stay back! There are two aides on the ward with me. She rolls her eyes for the black boys, but they are off tying the chronics into bed. Nowhere close enough to help her in a hurry. May Murphy grins and turns the hand over so she can see he isn't holding a knife. All she can see is the light shining off the slick, waxy, calloused palm. All I mean to do, miss, is to... Stay back! Patience on loud, Anna. Oh, stay back! I'm a Catholic! And straight away jerks at the gold chain around her neck, so a cross flies out from between her bosom, slingshots the lost pill up into the air. And Murphy strikes at the air right in front of her face. She screams and pops the cross in her mouth and clenches her eyes shut like she's about to get shocked. Stands like that. Paper white, except for that stain which runs darker than ever, as though it sucked the blood from all the rest of her body. When she finally opens her eyes again, there's that calloused hand right in front of her with my little red capsule sitting in it. Was to pick up your watering can you dropped. He holds that out in the other hand. Her breath comes out in a loud hiss. She takes the can from him. Thank you. Good night. And closes the door in the next man's face. No more pills tonight. In the dorm, May Murphy tosses the pill on my bed. You want your sal boy, chief? I shake my head at the pill, and he flips it off the bed like it was a bug pestering him. It hops across the floor where the crickets gravel. He goes to getting ready for bed, 
pulling off his clothes. The shorts under his work pants are coal black satin, covered with big white whales with red eyes. He grins when he sees me looking at the shorts. I'm from a co-ed at Oregon State, Chief. A literary major. He snapped the elastic with his thumb. She gave them to me because, she said, I was a symbol. His arms and neck and face are sunburned and bristled with curly orange hairs. He's got tattoos on each shoulder. One says, fighting leathernecks, and has a devil with a red eye and red horns and an M1 rifle. The other is a poker hand fanned out across his muscle. Aces and eights. He puts his roll of clothes on the nightstand next to my bed and goes to punching at his pillow. He's been assigned to the bed right next to mine. He gets between the sheets and tells me that I better hit the sack myself and that here comes one of the black boys to douse the lights on us. I look around and a black boy named Giver is coming and I kick off my shoes and get in bed just as he walks up to tie a sheet across me. When he's finished with me, he takes a last look around and giggles and flips the dorm lights off. Except for the white powder of light from the nurse's station out in the hall, the dorm is dark. I can just make out McMurphy next to me, breathing deep and regular. The covers over him, rising and falling. The breathing gets slower and slower, till I figure he's been asleep for a while. Then I hear a soft, throaty sound from his bed, like the chuckle of a horse. He's still awake, and he's laughing to himself about something. He stops laughing and whispers, why, you sure did give a jump when I told you that coon was coming, Chief. I thought somebody told me you was deaf. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please follow the show. And if you want to either here on YouTube or on podcast format, join the show. There is a link for both in the description box. It is one of the easiest ways to support me and uh, allow me to do this full time, which would be fantastic. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.